Okay, and just to say that there is a slight, uh, we've noticed a slight whistling, I shouldn't have drawn your attention to this, slight whistling on the speakers, but we can't, uh, we haven't been able to eradicate it. Um, anyway, as I said, Paul doesn't actually need uh, an introduction, so I'm not actually going to introduce him beyond, of course, reminding you that he is the director of the Centre for Catholic Studies, which he, I suppose, uh, dreamt up and invented and uh, has developed over the years. And so we're very... Um, Pleased to have Paul here this evening, because, my office. Because, <laughs> because often Paul is, is not here, you're, you're away doing much more important work in, in the church. And of course it is tonight Paul is going to talk about the church uh, and the Pope, and maybe he's going to speak for the church and the Pope. Not at all. But I'll hand over to you, Paul. Thanks, Jared. So good evening. Um, this paper derives from... Um, paper I gave at a conference on Evangelii Gaudium that was held at St. John's College, Cambridge in June of this year. Um, some of the, a few of those papers are coming out in a, uh, a forthcoming edition of Ecclesiology, and then there will be a full volume of essays coming out, I think, with Brill uh, at some point in the future. So the title is Ecclesia a Pontificae. Uh, on delivering on the ecclesiological implications of Evangelii Gaudium. Um, throughout, I am sticking, giving some close exposition at various points of the uh, exhortation, but I don't keep saying which paragraph it's from and such like, partly to save time and partly because that would become terribly tedious. But um, if anyone wants to know where such such comes from, we can look at that later. Um, so let me begin. Whilst Pope Francis' 2013 apostolic exhortation, Evangelii Gaudium, may not have either the status or the sustained focus and political volatility of his um, encyclical Laudato Si, this somewhat odd exhortation uh, will, I predict, likely endure as the definitive articulation of the watershed nature of this papacy. Its game-changing nature was uh, recognised immediately upon publication, engaging Catholic conversation on multiple fronts, starved of oxygen throughout the two previous papacies, and speaking into them with remarkable directness born from pastoral concern to attend closely to lived realities. It's too long for a manifesto, at times somewhat rambling, but nevertheless we're presented here with the distillation of a lifetime's reflections and convictions on the properly evangelical orientation of all aspects of Catholic life and structure. But we have here more than a compendium of Pope Francis's personal theological synthesis and spirituality. He's outlining a wide-ranging proposal for cultural change within Catholicism, one undoubtedly born from his long experience in the local church in Argentina, but which now needs to extend well beyond his own papacy if it is to come to fruition. Nor is this any detached bureaucratic presentation of a fully detailed program and complete diagnosis, but an urgent plea to a renewal of mind, action and priority throughout Catholicism, the implications of which 
are yet to be worked out in specific detail. He urges each individual and each community to discern how most appropriately to take the issues forwards in their own circumstances. Now, approaching this exhortation from the perspective of a systematic theologian, my concern is to identify and analyse the specifically ecclesiological implications of the process of change that Evangelii Gaudium seeks to promote. From the outset, it's worth noting that we'd look in vain here for anything approaching in the document, I mean, rather than my paper, of course. Uh, we, we look in vain here for anything approaching systematic ecclesiological analysis. Theology is here put in its proper ecclesial context of emerging out of and addressing issues arising in the life of the church. What it does, what the document does, is to identify various sites urgently requiring of sustained formal attention in Catholic ecclesiology, many of which, it must be acknowledged, have already received significant informal attention since Vatican II. But the actual work of formally and systematically attending to these sites of ecclesiological interest is itself left outside the scope of Evangelii Gaudium. It follows, then, that the task of seeking to deliver on the implications of these ecclesiological sites and the issues they raise is properly and necessarily an analytical and constructive exercise and not simply a descriptive one, not simply a matter of reading them off, reading them off the pages of the document. The force of this paper is about identifying what the Catholic community and Catholic ecclesiologists in particular now need to do if we are to live into the ways of Catholic renewal that Francis um, advocates. It pursues its diagnosis in three steps. The first identifies the key sites of ecclesiological significance in the document. The second offers some initial reflections on the broad implications of Evangelii Gaudium for the contemporary task of Catholic ecclesiology and Catholic theology more generally concerning the manner in which these tasks should appropriately be pursued. How should Catholic theology be done in the light of Evangelii Gaudium, if you like? And then the third turns to identify something of the range of specific issues and potential ways ahead pertaining to these various sites of ecclesiological significance and representing the work, the constructive work, that now needs to be done. So, first section, the sites of ecclesiological significance in the document. Pope Francis's extended reflection on what it means for the whole life of the Church to be rooted in and called to attractive witness has implications for every member of the church and every facet of church life, placing mission as primary for both individual and institution alike. Echoing a parasida, the leitmotif is 
throughout the world, let us be permanently in a state of mission. At the institutional level, he draws out that the church exists not for itself, with only exceptional overflow into mission, but for the sake of, and only as a result of, such mission. All the institutional dimensions of the church, even when recognised as divinely willed, need to be properly oriented to and placed in effective service of this mission. Co-relatively, mission is not the calling of the exceptional few, but the ordinary calling of every individual. Grounded in their baptism and confirmation and the gifting of the Spirit, the call to missionary discipleship and a sharing in the census fide is normative for all. As such, not only do lay people represent the majority of the people of God, their formation and the correlative evangelization of professional and intellectual life represents the most pressing pastoral challenge. So rather than defining the church relative to the hierarchical ordering of the clergy, with the rest of the faithful simply as passive recipients, most of this is his language, I'm just laying quote upon quote, the clergy should be defined in relation to the laity who they exist to serve. He makes clear acknowledgement of the potential pathology of an excessive clericalism which can neglect to allow room for the laity to speak and to act and which keeps them away from decision-making. Here, particular emphasis albeit in somewhat essentialist terms, it needs to be acknowledged, is placed on the need to create broader opportunities for a more inclusive female presence in the church. Similarly, if the diocese is to fulfil its missionary impulse, it needs to undertake a resolute process of discernment, purification and reform. Episcopal leadership in vision and hope needs also to allow the flock to strike out on new paths, to include an ability simply to be in their midst, and to encourage and develop the means of participation proposed in the Code of Canon Law and other forms of pastoral dialogue, out of a desire to listen to everyone and not simply to those who would tell him what he would like to hear. In turn, and with reference to Pope St. John Paul II's remarkable request of church leaders and theologians from other traditions to help with reimagining the ministry of the Bishop of Rome, Pope Francis frankly acknowledges the disappointing progress since Atunum Sint, and reiterates that the papacy and the central structures of the universal church also need to hear the call to pastoral conversion. With reference to section 23 of Lumen Gentium, particular mention is made both of the potential role of Episcopal conferences in offsetting this excessive clerical centralism 
and of the way in which this potential has been hampered by the lack of any clear juridical support for their ordinary teaching authority. Related also to the need to overcome this Catholic default to excessive centralism are a number of ways in which Pope Francis advocates for a full and proper Catholicity. First are his reflections on there being a legitimate internal diversity of local expressions of Catholic life and structure around the world, each bringing diverse facets of the inexhaustible riches of the gospel to expression. And from this diversity, the spirit creates a unity which is never uniformity, but a multifaceted and inviting harmony. And he writes consequently, of the need consequently for there to be a, appropriate freedom to explore without fear what it means to discern and respond to the mystery of Christ in a given context and to ask what rethinking this may require of Catholicism. The correlate follows that authentic Catholicity is served neither by the eradication of legitimate multiplicity in favour of a monolithic uniformity, nor by the absolutizing of diversity into a fragmented and fragmenting difference. Um, the resonance there of Johan uh, Adam Merler is quite uh, deliberate and quite uh, explicit. Such situations require docility to the Holy Spirit, who alone can raise up diversity, plurality and multiplicity, while at the same time bringing about unity. And he continues, This is not to opt for a kind of syncretism, or for the absorption of one into the other, but rather for a resolution which takes place on a higher plane and preserves what is valid and useful on both sides. In turn, it is just such a reconciled diversity and that he borrows a term from ecumenical discourse, that should be sought after within intra-Catholic intra situations of disagreement and dispute. Now, as all of this might suggest, and as doubtless influenced by his reading of John Paul II's aforementioned Utunum Sint, Pope Francis's approach to inter-Christian ecumenical engagement at this point is in sympathy with the principles of what in recent years has come to be developed as receptive ecumenism, which itself draws key inspiration from Atunum Sint. Um, to give one example, quote, to give, sorry, to give but one example, again, direct quotation, in the dialogue with our Orthodox brothers and sisters, we Catholics have the opportunity to learn more about the meaning of Episcopal collegiality and their experience of synodality. All this said, however, it needs to be um, clearly recognised that in the context of appreciating women's contributions to pastoral ministry, we nevertheless find the bold statement that the reservation of the priesthood to males 
as a sign of Christ the spouse who gives himself in the Eucharist is not a question open to discussion. That's 104. The boldness of which statement is not reduced by his attempt to pass sacramental power from socio-political power. So that's a quick canter through, in the first section of this paper, a quick canter through um, the various sites of ecclesiological interest touched upon uh, in the course of Evangelii Gaudium. And um, as taking that last point, as with the various other sites which are um, identified here, this um, now requires full analysis, development and testing. Um, before, however, turning to do that in the, the third part of the paper, before turning to the third part of the paper to ask, you know, what does it mean to actually seek to deliver on this, uh, on this, um, uh, this range of issues that he opens up for us? Um, there's a prior question, which is to ask, um, to take account of some of the more fundamental implications of the nature of, of the Catholic theological task and the ecclesiological task in particular as it would seem to be implied by um, some of the frame that we get in Evangelii Gaudium. So second section, some fundamental implications of the document <coughs> for the Catholic ecclesiological task. So we move into a bit of a different register here. Um, it is a commonplace that the twin papacies of John Paul II and Benedict XVI were marked by increased polarisation within Catholic life. Polarisation, which is most evident in North America, and uh, which is frequently but unhelpfully referred to with the binary categories of conservatives and progressivists. The most influential and self-consciously theological construal of this basic polarity employs a contrasting pair of ideal types. With each pole representing the prioritisation of one of the twin streams of theological renewal that flowed into Vatican II. On the one hand, there is the aggiornamento concern for renewal of the tradition in the light of contemporary questions, which came to be associated with the theological corpus of Karl Rahner, the journal Concilium, and a retrieved Thomistic view of graced nature. Here, the world is regarded as both orientated towards the consummation of truth in Christ and as being already engaged with aspects of this truth in ways from which the church can potentially learn, not least in relation to the church's own need for reform. On the other hand, the resourcement concern for the transformative retrieval of the full riches of the tradition came to be associated with Hansers von Balthasar, um, Henri de Lubac, and the journal Communion, of which Joseph Ratzinger was a founding editor in a breakaway move from Concilium. This perspective, in turn, is characterised by an Augustinian judgment on the world as in error, and in need of the saving truth to be found within the church, together with a consequent dual emphasis on the need for mission and a tendency to resist ecclesial criticism. 
Now, a properly Catholic theology arguably needs to hold both of these voices in dialectical tension. But given that official approval very definitely resided with the second, together with a mindset given to perceiving practically all criticism as a dangerous act of disloyal dissent, an unhealthy balance of power and corresponding binary reduction of theological options resulted. <clears throat> Whilst um, the second, the um, resourcement option, has tended towards being content under this settlement to expound the perceived beauty and wisdom within formal Catholic theology. The first tended to sink into the slump of seemingly permanent opposition, <clears throat> manifesting the range of responses um, and psychoses, etc., that this suggests. Um, so now what I'm going to trace with four moves is really looking at this, um, what happened within the kind of concilium mindset and uh, that which it represented during this period. Well, were some proceeded in modes of frustrated grumbling, others mounted the barricades with prophetic counterblast, serving to keep alternative voices heard, but also inevitably reinforcing the basic binary divorce in the process. <clears throat> in turn, other minority options included attempts on the one hand to undermine and collapse the binary by patiently seeking to show quite what room for movement is available within the existing system. A Frank Sullivan represents that option. And on the other hand, um, to outflank the limits of court theology by articulating alternative theological visions unconstrained by any felt need even to engage the prevailing polarities. Um, James Allison's work is, reminds me of this option in some respects and Elizabeth Johnson in other respects. This um, entrenched climate of theological divorce and dysfunction within post-conciliar Catholicism suggest, sets, I suggest, the staggering freshness of Evangelii Gaudium in clearer perspective. A number of factors combine to show that this is all considerably more than just a change of mood music. Francis's consistent encouragement of honest exploration and voicing of concerns for one. Second, his clear advocacy of ecclesial reform. Thirdly, his emphasis upon the need to learn both from experienced pastoral reality and the wisdom of other traditions and perspectives. <clears throat> At minimum, this marks the end of the privileging of a chosen school of court theology and the welcoming back to formal Catholic conversation of those shaped by different theological instincts. Quite literally so in the case of Leonardo Boff in relation to Laudato Si, sent out into the cold and the previous regimes brought in as one of the authors of Laudato Si. What I want to suggest, however, and this is where this is all kind of leading up to, in having set up that binary and described it 
in having said something about the effects of it and how Francis um, collapses it, overcomes it, what I want to say is that it would be wrong-headed to see in this simply any straightforward reversal of the basic binary. The same game continued only with a different distribution of power and patronage. Whilst Bergoglio Francis is primarily a wise, intelligent pastor rather than a theological ideologue, he is nevertheless, I suggest, a man of profound theological instincts, and these instincts defy easy categorization within the prevailing Catholic binary. It is not that he comes down in favour of ad intra ecclesial reform rather than ad extra mission, one of the classic um, divisions, but that he refuses and transcends the supposed tension, viewing them as necessary, essential, necessary correlates. It is the demands of mission which themselves require ecclesial reform. One cannot be an excuse for not looking at the other. <clears throat> the demands of mission which themselves require ecclesial reform, firstly for the sake of missional effectiveness, secondly for the sake of ecclesial vitality, and thirdly for the sake of the quality and integrity of Catholic witness, that we might be what we preach. In this perspective, matters of ecclesial reform do not simply reduce to matters concerning the church's internal organisation and structures of authority. They relate rather directly to the sacramentality and sign value of what the church is before God and for the world, and directly, therefore, to the church's witness and mission. Similarly, it is not that he comes down in favour of theological challenge and criticism rather than doctrinal fidelity and ecclesial loyalty. This has been repeated again at the start of this synod, and that's not just rhetoric and manoeuvring. But that he again refuses and transcends the disjunction. It is precisely in his understanding, how far can we take this, but in his understanding, it is precisely fidelity to what the church most deeply is that frees him to engage ecclesial difficulties with honesty and confidence. Indeed, not only does he seek to avoid being caught between specific substantive expressions of the prevailing binary, he actively promotes, as, a, as I earlier noted, the overcoming of this destructive binary in principle, which serves only to diminish the quality of the church's Catholicity which should be precisely about holding that in gathered conversation. So, if the, let us put this in um, symbolic terms. If the younger son has been brought in from the cold, then it is not to a victory feast to which he's been called, but to the communion table. The question this leaves us is, with is, what does it mean for us to be called to lay down or at least to recalibrate our theological arms when a formal ceasefire is being encouraged 
within the Catholic culture wars. What I want to suggest is that were for one, the conservative, let us call it, it might mean learning that constructive articulation of the riches of the tradition is not incompatible with critical analysis of points of difficulty. For the other, the progressivist, it might mean learning to forego the voice of protest and to hear again the invitation to constructive contribution. And for both, I suggest it means the need to resist the common tendency to speak effectively only to our own in-group, those with whom we're already in agreement, simply reaffirming each other with already familiar tropes, commitments and shared vision. By contrast, each needs to learn, each needs instead to learn to pers- again to pursue a whole church orientation in Catholic theology. To learn to speak, and prior even to that, to learn to learn in a cross-bench fashion. Now, for those of us concerned to contribute to the process of ecclesial reform, seeking to serve the process of conceiving change within Catholicism by ministering therapeutically to its wounds, this means being prepared to take the time patiently to test and to demonstrate how the options we have before us, even those which are novel and apparently discontinuous, how they can be appropriately integrated with received formal Catholic understanding. It means, I suggest, being prepared to take the time to show how any proposed changes to the sedimented deposits of the tradition are indeed benign, even vital, rather than destructively invasive. This, I suggest, is a task requiring fine detailed needlework and keyhole surgery, rather than settling either for broad brush painting of desirable directions of travel or sweeping polemic and posture. As such, in some respects, it is a work of self-abnegation, a work of dusting off the prior work of others, the sheet music, the family sheet music that has been languishing in the ecclesial piano stool, exploring how it might now be put to work in a discriminating way. Most of all, I want to suggest that this is to view the work of theology as a properly collective, ecclesial task and responsibility and not simply a personal endeavour. It is properly about serving and building consensus and communion Sorry, it is properly more about serving and building consensus and communion than it is about a virtuoso solo performance concerned to distinguish itself over against others, polemic and posture.
That, of course, represents a particular challenge for those of us who are situated within the academic world of research, excellence frameworks and the like, wherein it is precisely the virtuoso solo performance that appears to count. So we have habitus rubbing up against responsibilities. It's in this spirit of whole church, what I call whole church ecclesial theology, whole church catholos ecclesial theology, concerned to scrutinise and test how the web of Catholic belief and practice might be virtuously and appropriately rewoven, that we turn now in the third section of the paper briefly to identify the set of substantive issues pertaining to the sites of ecclesiological significance touched on in Evangelii Gaudium. So specific issues and proposals pertaining to what in that first rather rushed section um, we identified as the sites of ecclesiological relevance in this document. The single largest site of ecclesiological significance within Evangelii Gaudium is that concerning the need to overcome excessive centralism and to deepen the relationship between papacy and the College of Bishops. Now here, Pope Francis has already taken certain steps. Um, let me identify five. Firstly, restructuring, restructuring the current synod process into a two-stage affair, allowing for greater deliberation and local consultation. It's running as we speak. Secondly, strongly encouraging the bishops to voice the concerns and, and pers perspectives of their local churches without fear of recrimination. And that's his language, not me projecting onto him. Thirdly, identifying the need for the juridical status of national and regional bishops' conferences and their ordinary teaching authority to be strengthened. Fourthly, appointing eight senior cardinals from different regions of the world church together with the Secretary, Secretary of State, his C9, to advise on the governance of the church. And then fifthly, initiating a comprehensive review of the workings of the Roman Curia and seeking to eliminate career curialism. In each of these cases, um, however, in each of these cases of uh, initiatives to overcome excessive centralism, there is still considerable further work to be done. Take, for example, the Synod of Bishops. Quite apart from such practicalities as to how often the Synod should meet, in what format and with what modes of prior consultation, the key issue that has yet to be addressed is whether it should move from being purely consultative to being genuinely deliberative. Now, a number of related issues come into play here. I mean, if he's serious about the move from excessive centralism, the deliberative seems to be, as the youth would say, a no-brainer. A number of related issues come into play here. Does a deliberative function for the synod already properly belong to it as an expression of the College of Bishops? Or must deliberative power be delegated to it by the papacy? And, and implying that it could then be revoked, of course. 
And behind this uh, lies the crunch question of all. Were the synod to be accorded a fully deliberative function? How would this cohere with the primacy of the Bishop of Rome as head of the college? Would it, for example, imply the possibility both of limits being placed on the initiating function of the Bishop of Rome and of there being an appropriate mechanism for resistive pressure from the College of Bishops acting against the papacy's own capacity for limitation uh, uh, and limiting um, action in the diocese um, and local churches. That question in turn takes us into another question. Can formal Catholic theology and canon law as currently configured, and they may not be one and the same, of course, the theology that is implicit in canon law may not necessarily um, 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 lie straight on top of the current state of formal Catholic theology, but we need to look at that. But can formal Catholic theology and canon law as currently configured be shown to allow for such possibilities, this possibility of introducing limits and checks on papal um, primacy? Or would one or both of formal Catholic theology or canon law have to be reconfigured? And if so, on what basis? I mean, that's not impossible. Canon law has been reconfigured previously. Why not again? Um, again, following Francis's lead and the developed strategy of receptive ecumenism, the question arises as to what fruitful learning in transposition might Catholicism here pursue in relation to other traditions? And in turn, these questions about the relationship between papacy and collegiality could be pressed further in two directions. On the one hand is the question as to what models and mechanisms there might be for preserving a properly executive function for the papacy in a context in which genuine forms of deliberative power were indeed to be operative within the College of Bishops. Let's take an example drawing upon some aspects of Anglican practice. Could, for example, Catholic theology and canon law develop in such a direction as would allow the College or indeed the Synod, or any other formally representative group of bishops on behalf of the College, to bring a proposal for consideration to a given Pope as head of the College on up to three occasions, even if the Pope declined to embrace it, before that Pope could rule it out of court for the duration of his papacy, or for a shorter time period, if deemed appropriate. Similarly, might it develop in such a direction as would co-relatively require the Pope to bring any significant proposed innovation with bearing on the universal church for consideration by the college or its representatives? I mean, these are not unthinkable issues. And if we are serious about Atunum Sint and the dialogue with the other traditions, there are Again, to quote the youth, they are no-brainers. They are actually very basic issues. If we're serious upon the language of moving beyond excessive centralism, at more than an 
affective level to an effective level, these are again no-brainers, for at least that they should be engaged for serious consideration. On the other hand, there is the question as to what voting system would be employed if a deliberative function were indeed to be associated with the synod. Well, presumably in this day and age, this would be an electronic system of voting. If so, this could be extended to the entire episcopate, at least in relation to crucial matters. Interestingly, this would provide, this may or may not be a good thing, this would provide <clears throat> both a means for efficiently consulting the entire episcopate in relation to the mind of the ordinary magisterium, <clears throat> for which it needs to be noted no mechanism currently exists, <clears throat> and an alternative to gathering the bishops in full council, which is now almost certainly impractical with over 5,000 bishops in the world. And quite apart from finding a space large enough to gather them, it's finding a bank account substantial enough to fund it. Um, Imagine Vatican II, 5,000 bishops, four times over. Uh, <clears throat> As regards the desire to enable the voices... I'm moving on to a different issue now, um, one of the other sites. As regards the desire to enable the voices and concerns of the local churches to be heard more clearly at the level of the universal church, encouraging the bishops to speak with bold confidence is all well and good. As to is the prospect of strengthening the juridical status and teaching authority of bishops' conferences. But we need not be naive about the differential power distribution between Rome and the local churches, nor blind to the further structural changes required before diocesan bishops and local bishops' conferences will feel confident in voicing criticism to Rome. This, in turn, as I, I suggest, all comes to focus in the current system of Episcopal appointments, which acts as a highly effective mechanism for exerting centralised control over the local churches and instilling a disproportionate level of anxiety in bishops' conferences about what the effects of rocking the boat might be. I've had that first-hand from a number of bishops. Um, what is required here is exploration and testing of appropriate means of returning Episcopal appointments to the local churches whilst preserving appropriate Roman involvement and potential veto in situations of extremis. In turn, let us move now beyond asking where the initiatives already set in train by Pope Francis might need to develop and turn to consider some pertaining to the vitality of Catholic life at the level of diocese and parish, which whilst their desirability is highlighted in Evangelii Gaudium, are not themselves yet on the implementation list. Well, one nodal issue here, in some respects analogous to those pertaining to the papacy college issue, relates to the decision-making structures that exist at parish and diocesan levels. Their nature and status. Whether it is conceivable for laity to be accorded a genuinely deliberative role whilst preserving the appropriate executive functions of parish priest and bishop, respectively. And that's a question that we could explore much more fully. Moving on, 
by what, if so, by what criteria and by whom should decisions be made as to whether a given member of the faithful is a reliable witness to the census fidelium? That's not a loaded question. That is a real question and actually a very challenging question. By what criteria and through what processes should the local church and parochial community seek to discern and make good judgments? Again, also significant here, although um, in a more formal manner, is the question of appropriate structures and procedures for genuinely representative and whole church theological consultation at the levels of diocese, particular church, and bishops' conferences or local church, and also at the level of the universal church. In turn, again, another nodal point, uh, quite different one, but um, relating in some respects, relates to ordained ministry and the range of issues involved here or prompted here, such as the hot-button questions of access to ordained ministry relative both to the ordinary requirement of celibacy within Western Rite Catholicism and to the restriction of ordination to men throughout the Catholic Church, as, of course, similarly throughout the Orthodox Church. Now, as regards the former issue, um, the um, requirement of celibacy, the ordinary requirement of celibacy within Western Rite Catholicism, which is essentially a disciplinary matter, supported, in turn supported, by the theology, spirituality, and pastoral practice of ordained ministry, which have grown up around it, Pope Francis is reported as having already indicated his willingness to engage requests from bishops' conferences to reconsider the current discipline. Indeed, um, is reported as actively encouraging such requests to be made. Um, just to note there, that's an interesting example of what I was alluding to earlier about the fact that the, uh, the, the um, disjunction or the uh, differential of power, differentiation of power between Rome and the local churches needs far more than simply the encouragement of Pope Francis before bishops are going to feel the need to speak honestly. I mean, look at that issue about um, the uh, restriction of ordination to um, ordinary restriction to celibates. It is notable that only one actively serving bishop in this country uh, was prepared to go on record as distinct from three retired bishops in saying it was time to take that issue to Rome. And that bishop, in turn, claimed to have been caught out by a um, uh, um, poor practice of the press. Uh, I know for a fact there are numerous bishops in this country who think that it's time to have a conversation about this, a number of whom have said so to me. So there's something um, not right going on there. Moving on, though. Um, by contrast, uh, um, when we move... Uh, uh, by contrast to the question of the restriction of um, ordination to celibates, when we come to the restriction of ordination to men, um, Pope Francis follows in line with the two previous papacies in regarding this as close to discussion. Um, given, however, it's relationship to some of the other issues already touched on, I think that this last point is worthy of brief comment before we begin to draw to conclusion. The formal Catholic position here currently rests with John Paul II's 1994 letter, Ordinatio Sacerdotalis, where his argument essentially comes down to the church not judging herself authorised 
to introduce such innovation into the tradition. Uh, the, ar- the earlier argument that had been appealed to in the 70s, the, uh, the iconic argument, doesn't really appeal, appear in Ordinatio Secundotalis, interestingly enough. It is rather uh, uh, an argument from authority, or the lack thereof, to make the change. Which um, we could move on, but it would be interesting to reflect on parallels with the slavery issue. The, um, here it was maintained that whilst uh, this was underlined, I should say, a year later, with a letter from the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith. Here it was maintained that whilst the issue of Ordinatio Secretotalis was not itself intended as an act of papal infallibility, the teaching it articulates is nevertheless to be understood as coming under the infallibility pertaining to the ordinary magisterium of the universal teaching of the Catholic bishops, and as such is to be held as absolutely binding and utterly closed. However, it is not clear that things are as straightforward as this might at first glance suggest. First, whilst it is clear, certain, whilst it is certainly conceivable that this is indeed the universal teaching of the Catholic bishops in such a fashion as brings it under the infallibility of the ordinary magisterium, the earlier noted problem is that currently there is no way of knowing this with certainty given that there is no efficient and canonically authenticated, that is important, no canonically authenticated means of ascertaining what the universal teaching of the bishops is on any given subject. Moreover, whilst it's clear that neither of the two previous papacies, um, nor indeed the current papacy, has been prepared to countenance the ordination of women, I want to suggest that the combination of the highly divisive nature of this issue, the depth of feeling it arouses, and the fact that thus far it has not been allowed full airing within Catholic conversation, the conversation was formally closed down, all suggest that even were it possible to devise an appropriate means of ascertaining the universal teaching of the bishops, it would at this point be pastorally and theologically imprudent to push the matter through to infallible status. If, from the perspective of the formal magisterium, the point is to make clear that for the foreseeable future, the Church has no intention of doing other, for whatever reasons, of doing other than reject the possibility of ordaining women, then there are ways of doing this which stop short of binding the church to absolute closure in such a fashion as would make heretics of those who are of a different conviction and who are still exploring how this might in fact be done with Catholic integrity. More generally, and building out from that, Catholicism, I further suggest, would do well to seek to regain strengthen and further develop a broader set of strategies for classifying and handling disputed questions beyond a tendency to an overly bold polarity between the seemingly open and innocuous on the one hand and the absolutely closed on the other hand. Inadequate in this regard is the overly broad and underdefined yet now common appeal to the notion of 
definitive teaching, which remains, waits to be defined. Whilst this is generally used by the congregation, the doctrine of faith, to refer to teaching which is judged as needing to be taken very seriously, even though it is recognised that no infallible judgment has yet been pronounced in its regard, we should not make the mistake of assuming that the CDF thereby intends to suggest that there is any legitimacy to continuing debate in such regards. On the contrary, the intention is to support and enforce the prevailing judgment of the CDF on given issues by moving them, even whilst full consideration is de facto still in train, into apparent company with those all matters already settled, thereby seeking to close down consideration prematurely. Um, it is that kind of elision of infallibility that uh, is destructive of the quality of the kind of Catholic conversation that I think Evangelii Gaudium is inviting us to enter into. I mean, these are things that ultimately require more than rhetoric and encouragement. They require structural and procedural change if we're to deliver and overcome some of the constricting um, effects that are paralyzing aspects of Catholic health. Alongside these hot-button questions concerning access to ordained ministry, other questions also exist, albeit at somewhat cooler temperatures. So let's, as we get the landing gear down and the landing strippers in sight and all that, let's move to somewhat cooler temperatures. But I want to say actually something which goes to the absolute heart of the cultural change, the theological, systemic, cultural change in Catholicism that's required if we are to step up to the plate on the challenge of Evangelii Gaudium. Um, alongside these hot-button questions concerning access to ordained ministry, other questions also exist, albeit cool at temperatures, concerning existing patterns of ordained ministry within Catholicism, and whether these might evolve to allow for the kinds of part-time, non-stipendiary, and local ordained ministry that we find in other traditions, such as Anglicanism and Methodism. In such traditions, a mixed economy prevails, with part-time non-stipendary and local ordained ministers working alongside, alongside full-time salaried ordained ministers. Now, given the frequently parlous state of parochial and diocesan Catholic finances, even in affluent countries such as our own, this is an issue with direct practical bearing on the aforementioned possibility of an unexceptional married priesthood within Western Rite Catholicism. The claim is often made, we simply couldn't afford it, therefore there's no point engaging it. There are ways of affording it that don't require um, suddenly um, um, full-time salaried uh, um, uh, married uh, priests. Similarly, similarly, there are questions as to whether there are also other ministerial models in other traditions, such as the office, the formal office of reader within Anglicanism and of lay preacher within Methodism, which could fruitfully be considered within Catholicism, thus allowing, for example, lay theologians and suitably qualified catechists and teachers of religious education to be commissioned and licensed to preach. I mean, some would think that's a terrible idea. Others might think it's a decent idea. Um, <clears throat> In turn, 
Lying behind all such issues in Catholic culture and its default habits, structures and practice of ministry, authority and accountability is the question of the lay clerical relationship and the lack of an integrated theology of ministry in post-conciliar Catholicism. And this, I think, goes to the absolute core of some of our difficulties in Catholic culture. Here, the question is as to whether Catholic understanding of the lay clerical relationship can be reconfigured in a way that does justice to the proper dignity of both. Note the proper dignity of both, whilst overcoming any suggestion of the destructive two-tier view of Christian existence that has so bedeviled Catholicism. Uh, doing justice to the proper dignity of both. Since the Council, we've had a standoff or a playoff to and fro between models that do justice to the dignity of the ordained, the apparent cost of the dignity of the lay of laity, and vice versa. It's been a seesaw. Uh, we need something that is an integrated theology of, of ministry, ordained and lay. The earlier noted binary tendencies in post-conciliar Catholicism, the resourcement, the aggiornamento, the um, communio, the concilium, have been characterised on this point by diametrically opposed approaches. One maintaining the necessity of an, on, of an ontological distinctiveness which appears to elevate the ordained to the detriment of the lay. The other tending to flatten ecclesial ministry and so fail to account for the proper sacramental distinctiveness of the ordained. Now, 